Take your Bibles. Let's open to the book of James. And if you would, uh, out of just respect and honor for the Lord and His Word, stand with me. We're going to ask His blessing upon us. And, um, and then I'm going to read from His Word. Let's pray together. Now, Father, we come now to the preaching and teaching of Your Word, and we humble ourselves before You, Lord. We willfully submit Lord, to the teaching of Your Word, Lord, the, the Word that we are going to bring ourselves under. And we ask, O oh Lord, that You would liberate and, Lord, free our minds from ignorance, lust, Lord, any in all prejudices, Lord, any of those mental and, and sins that keep us from fully enjoying You and, Lord, fully fully. Uh, serving you in the way that we should and ought. Lord, liberate our emotions. Set us free, O oh Lord, from this, this enslavement, these fears that often plague us from, from fully uh, acting in, uh, courageously for the gospel. Guide our wills, Lord. Bring our wills into subjection to the truth. Help us to feel rightly, Lord, about holiness and feel rightly about evil. Lord, we not only pray for our inner man, but we certainly pray, O oh Lord, that you would guide our paths and steps. Lord, help us to understand what we're hearing, how it applies, and how we need to make uh, what we need to repent of, choices we need to learn to make. And give us, Lord, the strength, the courage, and the want to to make those choices. But bless us. Lord, come and be with us. Walk in our midst and bring great light, Lord, where there's darkness. Bring great encouragement, Lord, where there's fear, where there's, Lord, any form of anxiety. Lord, whether we are old saints, older Christians, or just young teenagers, college students, whatever, wherever we are in life, Come and bring us into a greater conformity and relationship with Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, brothers and sisters, chapter 4, I want to read verse 11 and 12. That's going to be our text this morning. Hear now these words. Do not speak evil against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. Well, there is only one lawgiver and judge. And the one who is able to save and, do, and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? And thus ends the reading of James. You may be seated. Well, brothers and sisters, this morning's sermon is going to touch on and address the Christian and free speech. The Christian and free speech. Now, well, you may or may not know, but the free speech debate is rabid as of now in this nation. There's a lot of debate, there's a lot of arguments. There's a lot of discussion that is surrounding how we are to use our speech. Who can we 
speak for? Who can we speak against? What can we say? What shouldn't we say? What ought we to say? All of these things are being discussed nationally. And I think appropriately in the book of James, we are also confronted with the use of our tongue. There is a proper use of the tongue and then there's a evil use of the tongue. Good and evil, holy and wrong, moral and immoral way in which we use our words, what we convey about the truth, about any number of things. How we say it, what we say, how we express it. All of that is very important. In fact, just this past week, our legislators met and passed a resolution that protected certain groups of people. It's not necessarily a resolution against hate speech per se, but it is a resolution that does highlight and promote very caution when you speak against certain groups of people. And this bill or resolution passed overwhelmingly. Now, Christians were not mentioned in this group. Now, we weren't the only ones not mentioned. But Christians were not mentioned in this protected, in these protected groups. The debate is not only on a national scale over free speech, but the debate rages in our higher academic schools. Academia is rift with this First Amendment right. What will be allowed on campus? What's allowed in the classroom? Who can you speak for? Who can you speak against? And there is very, there, there, to be truthful, there is great error on both sides. Last week I made the statement, and I think some of you caught it, and seem to respond at least facially to it. And I said, I'm not a conservative. I think providentially the book, that the, the passage that we're looking at this morning will help me give an opportunity to des- describe what I, mean, what I meant by that. Where do we get this national understanding of free speech. We get it right out of the Bill of Rights, the First Amendment. Here's what the First Amendment of the Bill of Rights says. It says, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Now, my point in reading that this morning is not to go into a commentary on each point. I want to relate this amendment to a higher law, God's law. 
And I want us as Christians to learn to exercise and train our discernment when we engage in these conversations or debates, whether it be at work or in the classroom or in at a restaurant, we want to be clear-headed and minded as we discuss these matters and not get caught up in the rabid emotionalism that often surrounds this discussion. And I mean, you know, you can go on YouTube, right, and watch all of the just the 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 rage that this topic brings to people. Now, as we look at this amendment, this first amendment, there are two or there's a primary nationally understood, uh, this, this is nationally understood in one way. And it is this. It's the protection of practices. That is the conservative view. There are two views that I want to look at, the liberal and the conservative, and then we're going to look at the Christian. The conservative view is this, that a person is allowed to say anything they wish to say. Right or wrong, doesn't matter. Evil, good, doesn't matter. But he has a right to say it. He or she has a right to say it. And they view this, and I think, as a staple of liberty. As long as the nation is, can be sort of free, there should be an opportunity for people to be able to say whatever they please. Now, under this understanding that we ought to be able to say anything uh, we choose to say, no matter what, this is the protection of things like pornography. Pornography is protected under this amendment. So you can be vulgar and perverted as long as you want to be, and as long as you want to express that vulgarity and that perversion, or you're not you're not demanding anybody else participate in it, but yet you can exercise it. That's okay. That's just one area. Now there is the liberal understanding of freedom of speech, and it's very much like the one I just explained and described of the conservatives. Say anything and whatever you want to say, no matter how vulgar, no matter how perverse. That is your right to do so, except there's, there's some exceptions in this progressive understanding of the First Amendment. The exceptions are certain classes or distinctions of people that are protected under that amendment. Not everybody's protected under that amendment, but certain classes of people are protected under the amendment, and you should never speak evil or wrong or harshly or against these groups. So they protect these certain classes of people. Now, those classes can speak evil of others. They have the privilege of the First Amendment. They can speak evil of others, and it's okay. But the majority of people are not able to speak against the classes of people. Now, that class can change all the time. It just depends on who's making the laws, right? You, and what I want to point out is how arbitrary this is. Now, why make this point? Well, I, I want to make the point because, brothers and sisters, 
Christians ought to live by a higher standard than the norm. When I made the comment that I'm not a conservative, that I'm a Christian, these, this was what I had in, this is one of the things I had in mind. Let me say this. And I say it because I want you to think about it. Literally, think about what I'm about to say. I don't personally believe that George Washington and others sacrificed and died, sacrificed their wealth, their estates, their own livelihoods, and their very lives for the protection of pornography. Or any other perversion of vulgarity. It's hard for me to personally accept the fact that men, that we have hundreds and hundreds of letters that had some form of a worldview, Christian worldview, had some understanding of integrity, would die for another's right to be perverted. Now here's, you say, well that's a stretch. Let me, would you die for somebody's exercise to be a pervert? Would you do it? Would you sacrifice your livelihood? Then why do you think they would? It's hard for me to accept. As a Christian, brothers and sisters, James helps us and he takes us to a place where we really need to spend some time thinking about. James teaches Christians that we are of a higher law than the law of the land. And I'm not saying free speech is not important. I think it's vastly important. But to, to, to pervert that right to protect all kinds of perversions is not good. It is not honoring and pleasing to God. And we have a whole book and we have all of history that demonstrates what God is against and what He is for. Look with me at James and let's begin looking at this better law. First point I want to make this morning from verse 11 is that we should not allow malcontentment to be the motive of judging others. We should not allow envy, malcontentment, maliciousness. These are all personal lusts. These are all things that we struggle with. Calvin says there's not one of us that's not described in the book of James. We all have the ability to be envious, to be hateful, to be, to be bitter. These are, these are personal desires and emotions that the Christian must learn by God's grace, His Spirit, and His means of grace, the Word of God, to come and put those desires, evil desires, not all desires are equal, are there? There are bad ones and there are good ones, but we should put these to death. But when we don't put these sins to death in us, 
They spill over, not only harm and damage our own happiness and well-being, but they spill over and they harm and they damage others. Now we've looked at that in chapter 4. And James continues that understanding in verse 11. Notice what he says. He says, do not speak against one another. Or do not, some translations will say, do not slander one another or speak evil of one another, brethren. What James is saying here, the word slander means to talk down. Now, not to talk down too. That's a different sin. We can talk down to others as we believe we're better than others. That's not what James is meaning. That's not what James means here. James means to talk down. That is, this slander or this evil speaking is the talking down of others to do what with ourselves? When we talk others down, what do we do with ourselves? We raise ourselves up. To talk down about someone else is to exalt ourselves. If I can make this person look really bad, I can make myself look really good. And that applies to a person. It can reply to a family. It can apply to a church. It can apply to a nation. And James says, don't do it. Now, James is already... Well, we've got to take the, what James is saying in context, don't we? I mean, go back up to the beginning of chapter 4. What are the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Notice this chapter is filled with questions. Questions that are designed to cause us to look in the mirror, look into the, the perfect rule of God's Word so that we might judge ourselves. You know what James called it in chapter 1? The law of liberty. The law of liberty. He says, It's not the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members you lust and do not have. You commit murder. You are envious. You can't obtain it. You fight. You quarrel. You know, all these things, these are, these, are the, these are the ideas. This is what James is working with here. He says, brothers, and look, don't let your maliciousness, your malcontent spill over into your judgment of others. Now, if you harbor hatred in your heart, how accurate is your judgment going to be of the person you hate? How accurate is it going to be? If you envy someone or some group or something, how accurate is your judgment going to be about that? That's what James is referring to here. Do not speak evil against one another. And of course, he's addressing this sin in the church body, isn't he? One another. Brothers. Sisters, if you go back over to chapter 3, look at verse 1 of chapter 3. See, this is, a, this is just this strand of thought, this, this chain of thinking. Look what James is dealing with. It This preeminence. This preeminence. The, exalt, the exaltation of self. The exalting of self over others. To be their teacher. To be their guide. To be their judge. He says, don't do this. Don't let many of you become teachers because did you not know that you will fall under a very stricter judgment than 
They? So we haven't, James has not divorced the rest of the letter from these thoughts that he's been building upon. He's laying them out to us and now He's addressing and He is dealing with what it looks like when we have our hearts filled with all of these lusts. It spills over into how we judge or critique our brethren. James, as I will point out, does not say not to judge. We are brothers and sisters. God made us as critical creatures. Why? Why did God? Why? Because we're reasonable. We reason. We think. You can't. You can't have judgment and not have thinking. If you are a thinker, you're going to have criticisms. You're going to have judgments. You're going to have perceptions. They go hand in hand. And you know, unless you want a dullard and a dumbed down people, then there's going to be no no discernment, no judgment, no thinking. But if you're going to have an intelligent, reasonable, thinking people, you're going to have judgments and discernments to make. We make them all the time, every day. Many of these judgments and discernments we make are for our well-being and protection. I may see something very shady going on over here. I make a judgment. Not to turn in there and get my gas. Right? Because God has given us the ability to look at a situation and make a judgment call about it for our protection. This is exactly the reason why we don't buy the propaganda. We are never to judge. We're never to make criticisms. But, but if we are going to be, if we're going to exercise this privilege, if we're going to exercise, let me say it this way, this humanness, we better do it rightly. We better do it accurately. We better do it according to God's law, by God's grace, and according to the Holy Spirit, and with a measure of compassion, grace, truth, and strength, right? We've got to be willing to do these things. That's, it, it's interesting that James takes to position that, that all Christians ought to be following after the law and rule of God. Now we're going to get to that in just a moment, but let's, let's continue with this first point, not to be malcontent in our judgments. When you think about malcontentment and you think about uh, judgments, we see it in the very first conversation man has with God right after his fall. The very beginning of the world, right after man rebelled against God, and when God comes down in order to bless man and to restore him and to heal him and to, to, to bridge this gap that's been created by their unholiness and sin, what does man say when God speaks to him? Well, it's the woman you gave me. What's Adam doing there? Adam's rendering a judgment. Is he not? Adam just rendered a judgment. He just rendered an assessment of the situation, didn't he? 
He just spoke clearly about his views about the problem that they were in. And what was his assessment? What was his judgment? We wouldn't be in this mess if it wasn't for the woman you gave me. That's his assessment. That's his judgment. That's his critique of the circumstance. Now, brothers and sisters, I'm going to only say this because I'm not preaching on Genesis 3. Adam's wrong. He's wrong. He's failing to take responsibility. That's not what he should have said. He not only misinterpreted the the whole situation and scenario, but he, he puts the blame at the wrong place. God, it's your fault. <laughs> it's this, you should have gave me a better woman and we wouldn't be here. Adam's failing to take responsibility for his own actions. He misjudges the situation, doesn't he? He misinterprets the real problem. The real problem is not the woman. The real problem is his heart. That's the real problem. Okay. Let's look at a couple of passages of Scripture to support some of this. Uh, Go to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Chapter 4 has a lot to say about um, speech as well, but let's look at verse 30 through 32. It says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Now notice how Paul commands, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. How do we grieve the Holy Spirit? We grieve the Holy Spirit when we harbor bitterness. When we harbor wrath and anger and clamor and slander. When we, when we, when we harbor malice, we are grieving the Holy Spirit. And Paul says, well, don't, don't do that. You have got to exercise God's Word and, and your heart. And what did James say? Cleanse your hearts. Cleanse your hands. Purify yourselves. We have got to recognize who's above anger. Who's above being angry at somebody? Who's above hating others? Who's above clamor and slander? I don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit. I want the Holy Spirit to have full access and power in my life to bring me all the things that God has intended for me. I want that. In order to have that, I need to I need to die to these sins. I need to kill these sins in me so that I don't grieve the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit in my life. Let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 3. Let's 
Look at verse 8 and following. It says, Deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not doubled tongue. Notice, uh, notice that the passage is addressing speech. Are addicted to much wine or fond of sorbid gain. Holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. What he means by that is this mystery of the faith. That is, this mystery is what God's revealed. He says, holding to his faith with a clear conscience. That is, there's nothing that I know of that I, have, that, that I haven't repented of, that I won't repent of, that I w- would never... I, I, my conscience is clear as I walk with God about myself and sins. Okay? That's what he means by a clear conscience. He says, these men must also first be tested and then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Women, likewise, that is uh, dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons must be husbands of one wife and good managers of their children and their households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and a great confidence in faith that is in Christ Jesus. What the point being here is that these officers are given the, it's not, they're not given a higher law than everybody else, but they must shine in these areas. Even the wife of the officer must be someone who can govern her heart and tongue must be someone who can make judgments and not jump on bandwagons, not jump on the, 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 the emotional wave that either runs through a church, and, and I think that's our first application, you know how emotions can run high in churches? And to just jump on that emotion without what? Thinking through it, examining it with the Word of God, examining it with the Word of God that you've hidden in your heart so that you can make assessments. and Because you don't want to be guilty of judging God. See, that's where James takes us. We're going to look at that in just a second. Let's look at another passage of Scripture quickly. Uh, 2 Timothy 3.3 Now notice... Paul gives a description in this text of Scripture. He's describing those that may uh, that are not Christians. He's describing those who are unbelievers, and these unbelievers are found both outside and even inside the church. Believe it or not, unbelievers do infiltrate the church. Unbelievers do make a profession of faith. It's not a real faith. It's not a, a true reality of a converted, regenerated heart. That's not from a mind and a heart that is desired to show submission to God. It's just more culturally than anything else. And notice what Paul says. He says, but realize, verse 1, realize this, that in the last days, Paul was speaking of his time, not our time. In the last days, difficult times will come. Now, what's going to make these times difficult? What's going to make it so hard for the Christian? Well, let's look at these. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal haters of good. I'm just going to stop there. This is my point in addressing this 
in a, at least addressing our mindset in regards to Christianity, my faith, and free speech. We should not be guilty of any of these things. We should not allow our emotions, our prejudices, our hatreds to be so strong and powerful that it spills over into misjudging our brothers and sisters because it not only brings us and brings God's wrath and judgment on us, it hurts them and it hurts the body and it hurts our public witness and testimony. I mean, I don't choose to necessarily bring in this as a point of, of the sermon, but have you ever been misjudged? How did you, how'd you like it? How did you like it? Second greatest law. Love others as you love yourselves. Love your neighbor as yourself. If I love myself biblically with integrity, righteousness, and holiness. That is, the things that I see about my God and His character, I want to see in me. I want to see faithfulness. I want to see consistency. I want to see justice. I want to see a passion for the weak. I want to see a passion for widows, orphans. I want to see, I want to see a passion and, and, and fervor for true justice. I want what I see in my great God, I want to see birthed and matured in myself. That's called godliness to be godlike. And if that is true, if that is true, I want to see them a neighbor. Do you know why I want to protect my neighbor's property? Because if they can come and steal his property, they can steal your property. If they can come and take his possessions because of a view he holds that's not in keeping with the day and time, they can also come and take yours. If they can, if he can be misjudged and unjustly dealt with, and you don't come to his aid. Brothers and sisters, that's a sign that you don't care for your own justice and well-being. If I truly care about emulating and, and, and patterning myself after God, I'm going to be concerned about your property, your name, your possessions, your well-being. That's absolutely the basis of the law. That's the foundation of it. Right here, what James is saying is, listen, you wouldn't want others to do you that way. 
You wouldn't want others to judge you according to some hatred and malice and some root of evil they have against you because you're nice, you're well-liked, you're respected, you're tall, you're short, you're cute, you're, uh, you know, you're educated, you're all of the things that they may envy or they may despise. You don't want to be judged on that. I actually heard a professor from the University of Boston say, you know what, we just need to quit judging people on character and start accepting them for their classes. That's dangerous. That's dangerous. We can talk about that at lunch. All right. Number two, God's law binds all men equally and without exception. God's law binds all men equally and without exception. Not our personal whims, our preferences. God's law. Let's look at the text back in James. There is a universal law. There's a universal moral law that, is, that governs all men. It's not ours. It's God's. He says, notice, he says, he who speaks against a brother judges his brother, speaks against the law, and judges the law. Now, I'm going to stop there. When we, ex- when, when we fail to exercise biblical discernment, the reality of truth, compassion, grace, strength, justice, whatever the case, whatever's required in any circumstance, we make ourselves, according to James, a judge of God's law. You know what we say? You know what we're saying? Our way is better than God's way. What was Satan's lie to Adam and Eve? You will be like God. That's why he didn't want you to eat it. And they believed it. You're going to be like God. And when we judge others according to our own standards, this is what we become guilty of. We become a judge of God's moral law. And James is warning us against this. So he who speaks against the law judges the law. He says, but if you judge the law, if this is you, if you judge the law, then you're not a doer of it, which is what we're supposed to be. He says, but you're a judge of it. You don't become, look, what's our duty in, in God's law? What's our duty to God's moral law? To perform it. To do it. And each one does so with the gifts and talents and graces and understandings and abilities that God has granted to them. You know, I think about, I'm reading, I'm reading, I have a book in my book list that's about the conscience and it's about how the conscience is governed by God's law and how that governed conscience works itself out into society. And it's always, it's, a, it's an area that I think needs to be opened up that we don't know much about. And uh, men and 
pastors and, and congregations several hundred years ago had access to the kind of teaching that helped in this area. But here's what the theologian went on to say. He said, let's just say, let's say uh, our government passed a law. Now, we believe in the doctrine of uh, the fourth commandment. We believe there's a moral obligation for God's people to assemble and meet on the Lord's Day, right? Or on a Christian Sabbath. To, to worship and uh, serve Him. We believe that God is sovereign over time. What happens if a, if a government says you can't do that? What does that look like? You're going to be punished severely if you do it. Well, a Christian should strive to do it the best way they can in the opportunities they've been given. But here's what the theologian says. This is what I want to point out to you. He said, but in the Christian's conscience, in order to keep his conscience crisp and sharp to God's law, he also knows that by not assembling, it's wrong. Because God deserves it. No matter what. But he's unable to. And he keeps his conscience crisp by saying, Lord, forgive me for violating my conscience. Forgive me. Lord, I don't want to put it away because what would we do? How would you, how would you harden? How would you damage? How would you destroy your conscience by saying, oh, well, I can't do it, so it's a big deal. Oh, well. Nobody, we can't do it. can't do it. Let's move on to something else. That's how you harden your conscience. The theologian says, no, you want to keep your conscience sharp and crisp. You want to keep it in regards to the word of truth. Say, oh, Lord, if I could gather, I would. Oh, Lord, if I want, I want to gather. Don't take this away from me. Keep this desire so strong in me, God. Don't let it go away. Though my conscience pricks me all the time, Lord, I'm begging you, keep it sharp and crisp to the truth. Because what happens when that conscience no longer beckons you to do right? What happens? What happens? Nothing good. Nothing good. The door is open to all kinds of evil. Okay? God's law binds men, not our whims, not our pleasures. Turn with me to Romans 14. We only have time to look at just a couple more passages and then we'll have to move on. Romans chapter 14, Paul is addressing this transition period that the first century church finds itself. I mean, they're coming out of the sacrificial system. They're coming out of worshiping on, on Saturday. Uh, the Christians worshiping on Sunday. And so there was this, this major transition between these, these establishments, right? And it caused problems between Jew and Gentiles and believer and believer. And Paul goes, no, wait a minute. You need to learn, number one, not to exercise your law over them, but you need to learn to be patient and compassionate. You need to learn how to deal with one another as brothers and sisters. And now Paul deals with and addresses this sacrifice of meat and who can eat it and who cannot eat it. 
Because some of them were coming out of pagan worship and they said, well, this meat's been uh, offered and sacrificed to these gods. What they would do is they would off, the, these priests would offer up this meat. But then they would take the meat off the altar and they'd sell it in the market. Okay? And they said, oh, I can't eat this meat. It's been offered to this, this idol. I, my scruples won't allow me to eat and partake of this meat. But they need, listen, they were poor. The most affordable meat was the meat that had been offered to these idols. Now, if listen to me. Let's just say you have a very limited budget. And you can only afford this meat. Do you let your family starve? Because of the scruples of another. Or do you buy this meat and feed your family? See, this is the situation they kind of find themselves. Look at what Paul says, verse 1, chapter 14. He says, now accept the one who is weak in faith. Now the one who is weak, Paul describes as the one with these scruples. But not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. Why? Because he has these scruples based upon his, his understanding of obedience. He's not... He's trying to be obedient to God. One person has faith that he may eat all things. And he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not regard, does not regard with contempt the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat is not to rejudge the one who eats. For God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand for the Lord is able to make him stand. Here's what Paul, again, go back to what we're saying here. James and Paul are in agreement. Be careful about your strict scruples and judgment of others. Both parties are exercising what they believe to be their religious freedom according to God's word. And he says, who are either one of you to judge your brother who is living by those scruples that he believes are biblical based? Who are you to judge him as not a brother or not holy or not obedient and not faithful? Who are you? He deals with both of them, but he does come down toward the end of the chapter and he goes, listen. It's wrong for the strong believer to, to act as if the scruples of the weak brother and sister don't matter or you're just immature. And it's wrong for the weak brother to judge the, the mature believer who eats the meat and say, well, you just don't care what God thinks. See, Paul condemns both of them. But notice, Paul is dealing gingerly with both of them. He says, look, God is the master. You are the servants. That's why I made the comment a while ago. We all come, and we are all based upon our circumstances, our gifts, our talents, our understanding, uh, the things we've been exposed to, the things we know are right. All those things come into play when we make judgments. They come into play. All right, let's bring this portion to an end. Let's, let's look at the strong part that James makes and close. 
Verse 12, there is only one lawgiver and judge, and the one who is able to save and destroy. And who are, who are you to judge your neighbor? Two things that James points out here is what the whole scriptures point out. How many lawgivers are there? One. Does that mean that men cannot make laws? No, it doesn't mean that at all. But I am bound consciously and outwardly to obey God's law as it's been revealed in Scripture. I'm a, I, I, am de, I am bound to obey what God says. That's why Peter, that's why Peter and John, when they were whipped and, and, and beaten for preaching the gospel, they said, look, you do go out of here and you don't, you don't tell any more about people about this Jesus. We must obey God rather than men. That's what James is saying. There's one lawgiver. One judge. When we stand, my brothers and sisters, you know part of the gospel is there's coming a day when there's going to be a judgment. And the Lord Jesus is going to render a judgment. And He's going to render judgment based upon what? Based upon His revealed Word. Based upon that. He's going to render judgment. He's going to judge all men justly. Do you think there's going to be anybody that will be treated unjustly at judgment day? No. Each person will get everything they deserve on judgment day. All of us will receive Exactly what we deserve. There is one lawgiver and there is one judge. And notice the implication of that. The one who is able to save and to destroy. Let me say this about courts. Human courts. Church courts. Evil men in this life do get away with things. It happens. Sometimes there's just not enough evidence. Even in light of everybody believing they're guilty. But you can't go on emotion and render justice. You've got to go on evidence. And they may escape the courts of the earth. They will not escape the heavenly court. God will render to every man his just due and he will destroy, he will cast into hell those who deserve it and he will raise and save those who deserve heaven. They will have it. That's the point that James is making. This is where James is going and this is what I want to do. I want to, I want to give you a couple things to think about as we close out, as we go throughout the day. First of all, where James talks about who are you to judge your neighbor. Let's look at just a few of these. And these are questions. We're not going to answer them. You take these with you. Number one, who are you to judge your neighbor to consider your life, your own life, above being judged? Notice, it's interesting, isn't it, that those who love to pass criticisms and judgments on others don't like being judged themselves. But that's James, that's, that's Matthew chapter 7. 
Judge not lest ye be judged. First dig the speck out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to dig the beam and the post out of your neighbor's eye. We must first recognize, brothers and sisters, that if we're not going to be guilty of this sin, we must learn to judge our own lives first. Number two, do not ascribe ill motives to any person without warrant. Now, what do I say without warrant? Because there are things that are said. There are things that are done that can warrant questioning. There are things we can do to warrant judgment harshly. There are things we can say. You know, it always never goes to fail that people can say whatever they want to say. And they'll be like, well, you can't judge my heart. Well, I'm, I'm, I could judge your heart based on what you said. That, that's a reflection. Words are an expression of the heart. Things you say and things you don't say are an expression of, your, of one's heart. Be careful about ascribing ill motives to anybody without due warrant. Number three. Do not judge one's sincerity without cause. Without cause. That is, based upon words and actions, you can say, based upon these things, <laughs> it's hard for me to see your sincerity. But notice how that's couched. I want to believe you're sincere. I truly do. But based upon these things, I'm having a difficult time accepting that sincerity you're offering. Help me reconcile these things. See, look, brothers and sisters, when we claim a pure motive, when we claim sincerity, when we claim no, you know, no ill feelings, we have to, what's the proof of it? You're only going to be able to be examined by the things you say and the things you do, right? Isn't that what, that's how husbands and wives work. That's how church uh, that's how church congregations work. That's how we function in society with bosses and employees. and empl That's how we live. Based upon the things you say, the things you do are hard to reconcile with any of these other things when it comes to, you know, it's like a guy said, you know, when you hear a politician stand up and he says something with his mouth, but he turns right around and votes the opposite way, and he says, well, my motives are pure. Are we going to keep falling for that? Are we really going to keep falling for these things? Lastly, and challenge someone's love for God or others without considering their life context or actions. Here's what I mean by that. Brothers and sisters, if you're going to look, if there's anybody in this room going to be judged harsher than anyone else, it's me. You judge me harsher than you judge anybody else in this room based upon knowledge, understanding, experience, how long I've been a Christian, things I've been exposed to, the people I've read, all of those things. But as you deal with others, you have to take into account what they, what they know, how they live consistently with it, what they don't know, how long they've been a Christian, what they're exposed to. All of these things matter. When we begin to assess the situation, we must always take into account life context. We've made decisions as this church, as a court, not to do certain things based upon the weaknesses and context of life. And they made determinations on how we acted and responded to them.
so much more I could say, and I know uh, 